This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Giveney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, there's been so many things going on in politics this last week. I know we missed last week, so we do want to uh, apologize to everybody, but that's on me. My schedule has been crazy so I hope you show us a little bit of grace, but we are back. Want to cover? Usually we, you know, we talk about sports or something like that in in the introduction. But there's been so much going on. I want to touch on, on a few other things before we get to that. If that's okay with you, Chris, let's do it. All right. The first thing I want to touch on is more and more. The more information that comes up out about this, the more clear it is to me that a lot of y'all folks out there owe Senator Rand Paul an apology for the longest. He's been pointing out that. Most of the evidence and now the great majority of the evidence points toward the cause of the COVID you know, pandemic coming out of a lab, being a lab leak in Wuhan. Well, new information has just come out, very credible information from government sources saying that they found patient zero and that patient zero was so the first person that you know had COVID was like a researcher at the Wuhan lab again. The great majority of evidence points to the fact that this was a lab leak. And so many of us did not want to believe it was a lab leak simply because Trump mentioned it. And then some, you know, some other folks that we might not like mentioned it. There's a lesson somewhere in there, Chris. But I think it is important that we acknowledge where the evidence points us towards and how we can avoid basing you know, our opinions and what we put out there. Uh, based on the messenger rather than the substance of the message. But go ahead, Chris. Any, any thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, certainly that is one of the lessons, you know, in terms of how we listen and how we engage. But I still think there's some opportunity to, you know, to do some fart-looking things and think about how we adjust how we're funding and how we're doing things in the scientific research community to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. And it shows us that the, the truth can come from a lot of different places. You can't just write off what somebody says simply because of who they are. I mean, to me, this was kind of the most obvious answer, being that there was a lab in Wuhan where they were doing this research. But somehow, and part of this has to do with Fauci, and he, I think he has some very serious questions to answer. Somehow we begin to believe that that's least likely, even though that lab was in Wuhan and they were doing that research. And this research was funded by the U.S. to some extent. So there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, and we've been touching on this for a while, but I just want to drive home the fact, guys, that it's looking like this was a lab leak, and many of us refuse to believe that. I will give this podcast credit 
because we were not partisan about it at all. We waited to hear what, you know, we waited to hear as much information as we could. And we pointed that this looks like a lab leak, even though we're not getting that from mainstream media and some of the people that are leading this and that we're supposed to trust. Yeah, it just it just followed logic. And, you know, it's it's insane how powerful the bully pulpit and the power of the media still uh, in this country. It is very powerful. The other thing I think we have to touch on, even if it, if briefly, is the Hunter Biden conversation. Uh, he has reached a deal with the DOJ dealing with having guns, drugs, you know, some tax evasion stuff. It looks like a pretty sweet deal, Chris. Many people would say, you know, if, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, many people will say, look, this drug on forever. And then you give him a deal that, from my understanding, when you're you know, caught in this situation, that only about one percent of the people don't do time. Many people do five to seven years for this type of charge if they're going to plead to it. And he's pleading to something without having really gone through the whole whole process. There's so much we could say about that. I think the administration opened themselves up to some very serious criticism here. What are your thoughts on the Hunt Biden situation, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's as bad for the administration. I think it's a bad look, and it, it's just another example of the the two tiered criminal justice system uh, that we still have in this country. It's really sad, but it's one of those things that continues to eat away at the public trust every time something like this happens. Yeah, because we we know our cousin that's caught with less in a lesser situation is not getting off in this way so we'll see what happens you know and it's tough with the son you know many people are commenting on the fact that joe biden said hey my son has done nothing wrong blah blah blah. i was like he obviously did something but that's a that's a rough situation you know it's it's in the public eye some some of the allegations are even more serious some people are saying within this investigation they didn't even take the laptop and look all the way through it a whole bunch of stuff going on man we always have to regardless of what party we support want justice to be served. And in this case, uh, very shaky to say the least. Anything else on that, Chris? Yeah. I mean, I, I would just say it's, it's a difficult thing I have to imagine for a father, but you don't have to become president of the United States. Um, and when you do, that brings a lot of things about your life into a higher level of scrutiny. So it's the nature of things. Exactly. I want to remind everybody about our Invisible Institution or IVI newsletter. Keep your eye out for that. The June issue will be arriving very soon. So look at your email. If you haven't signed up for it, go to our website and campaign.org to sign up for that. Also, when you go to the website, you might want to check out the How I Got Over docuseries, which talks about the role that the authority of Scripture played in the establishment of the black church and the music of the black church in the social action of the black church and and so on. You want to see that documentary, that docu-series. You spend a lot of time on it. And you'll get to see Chris, who is featured in that docu-series, all right? Well, y'all know what it is. We always do this. I want to give a shout-out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. I also want to shout-out our patrons on patreon.com slash churchpolitics. You know, these patrons, they get extra episodes, right? So they get premium content where we talk about things that, we may not talk about on this show. So if you want to support us, but also want to get more information, you need to sign up and, and check us out on Patreon. Uh, today, I think we'll be talking about how far some kids have fallen behind when it comes to education, the reason why and what we can do from there. So that's going to be interesting. You guys know that Chris is pretty much an education expert, has been in this field for a, lo- a long time. So we always appreciate his opinions on that. But let's get into it. We got a lot to talk about. So grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think, not like a Republican, 
not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And I want to start today, Chris, with Proverbs 31, 9, which says, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Chris, you know that the Ann campaign is always talking about uh, quite a bit what it looks like to apply the scripture to our lives, what it looks like to apply biblical principles to the things that we do every day, whether it's our interactions with our neighbors or it's our profession and so on. When we think about judging fairly, what does that mean in certain contexts? To me, Chris, if, if you think of a judge or even if you think of someone who's in a position where they're interpreting laws in, in other ways, to judge fairly, I'm guessing, would mean to look at the law. If the law is fair, then to apply the law fairly. Right now, if the law is unfair, maybe that's a law that you have to go against. But if the law doesn't seem to be immoral, then you apply that law in the best way that you can. One thing that's kind of disheartening, I think, right now, Chris, about our Supreme Court is when a case comes to the Supreme Court, sometimes you kind of know where everybody's going to land. Right. The liberal justices are going to land on, on the liberal side of the conversation. The conservatives on the other side. There's there's a few who Kagan to go back and forth a little bit. Roberts. But generally, you know what they're, they're going to land when they first announce the case. I think that's problematic. And, and I'm not just, you know, questioning everyone's veracity on the Supreme Court. We, we appreciate our justices, but there's something wrong with that. Right. I, I think we should all have a problem with just kind of knowing where people are going to land. But I do appreciate those who kind of take either side from time to time. And one of the reasons I bring this up is about a week and a half ago, Chris, the Supreme Court rejected Alabama's congressional map saying that it was drawn in a way that basically disenfranchised black vote voters based on Section 2 of the Voters' Rights Act of uh, 1965, okay? This, Chris, came as a surprise to a lot of people because in 2013, the Supreme Court had really eroded major parts or kind of gutted major parts of the Voters' Rights Act by taking out Section 5. And that was tough. And so a lot of people thought the same thing was going to happen here but it ended up differently. So I want to tell you kind of really what happened. And, and NPR even states it this way. It says, at issue in this case, and again, this was about a week and a half ago, at issue in the case was Alabama's congressional redistricting plan adopted after the 2020 consensus. The Republican-dominated legislature drew new district lines that packed large numbers of black voters into one congressional district and then spread out the remaining black population in other districts so that black voters had little chance of electing a second representative of their choice in a racially polarized state. In other words, the black vote was diluted. If we're going to look at the scripture that I just mentioned, Proverbs, there's a few people in this throughout this process had chances to apply the law justly, right? Fairly. You had the folks in Alabama who actually drew the map, right? These people had an opportunity and you can judge them whether they did it or not. I'm not telling you exactly what to think, but they had an opportunity to make sure that they were applying the law and not putting certain voters in a situation where they were disenfranchised, right? Then you have the initial court that saw it, right, in Alabama that had a chance to speak up and say, hey, this doesn't fit the law or this goes at very least against the spirit of the law. Then you have the Supreme Court and others who have these opportunities to judge fairly. 
and it doesn't always happen. But I do want to give the Supreme Court a little bit of a shout out here to say, at least the folks who were in the majority to say, doing what was unexpected, but what looks to me like a fair application of the law is what should be expected. And I'm glad that we got to it in this case, because I, I don't know about you, Chris. I was worried about this decision, but happy to see that they came out what I think uh, in the right way. So what, what's going to happen now is that map has to be redrawn by Alabama, by the folks in Alabama. Right. They got to redraw it and do it in a more fair way. We'll see what happens. Oh, we'll see if there's these uh, changes are substantive enough to pass the muster of, you know, the Voters Rights Act. But but certainly this, I think, Chris, was good to see in an age we almost know how somebody is going to come down once you hear what the subject matter is. Yeah, no, for sure. This is certainly something that is near and dear to my heart in Illinois. I've been involved in a couple of redistricting reform efforts, not successful, but efforts made. So to see, you know, Kavanaugh come over and I think make the right decision in terms of Alabama's specific case, but also like you you know, alluded to, to leave Section 2 intact, where there certainly was an opportunity to weaken Section 2 similarly, you know, similar to how they did to Section 5 in 2013. And so, to know that this kind of approach, at least this this narrow focus on diluting the vote is going to be intact, I think is very important. Because redistricting is one of those things. You know, I, I'm one who kind of believes that, like, you know, kind of rejuvenating our democracy is the great civic project of our lifetime. And there are a lot of fronts to that. I think redistricting is a major one. I, I do want to point to the fact that I think Ultimately, these things come down more so to party than they do about race, because there's this technique of cracking and packing. If you look across states that are controlled by Democrats and Republicans, both parties do this with minority voters. They just do it in different ways to benefit their party. So if you, if you look at blue states like Illinois, Democrats tend to pack and crack black communities in order to to favor the Democratic Party. So, you know, you take a city like Chicago, where you could probably create a few more majority-minority districts where Blacks would control the outcome of the election. You could make more of those type of districts, but it would net fewer Democratic districts across the whole state. So instead of creating those districts, you actually crack Black communities and push them out into other non-Black communities to make those districts more Democratic. And so I don't want anybody to walk away from this case or this debate thinking that this is people arguing mostly about Black folks' voting rights. I think it mostly comes down to party power within the states. You know, so that's just a point that I think people should know. I think that's a good point. And, and, I, and I think that's why people listen to the Church Politics Podcast, right? You're going you're gonna to get that perspective to say, look, we're happy that this came down this way. However, when it comes to gerrymandering, when it comes to drawing these lines, it's very partisan and partisans are going to do what helps them best. Thankfully, we do have, you know, something on the books that says there's a limit to what you can do when it comes to, to, to minority uh, districts and diluting that power. And again, it's something that we should take very seriously because I've said this over and over again, this country by law has disenfranchised African-Americans when it comes to the vote far, far longer than it's actually given them 
franchise. And there's still some questions about whether that's as full as it should be. And so we should all care about this because in my perspective, this is a agency, right? It's a human agency issue. And it's about applying the law and what citizenship means in the United States fairly. And Christians, regardless of how you want a political outcome to what you want it to look like, have to care more so about that fair application, that fair judgment. And so so it's important to us. Any, anything else, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's 100 percent right. Uh, this is one of those things where people really should be on the lookout at the state level. I mean, it's not going to happen again now until 2030. But districting is one of the most important things that can happen for Congress. It's, 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 to me, it's one of the big reasons why Congress doesn't move. Look at campaign finance reform, which is absolutely something that happens. But based on our maps right now, we have only 60 or 61 competitive congressional districts in the country. All the rest of the districts, of uh, the 435, all the rest of them are just not competitive, completely one party. And so all of our politics nationally are really being fought on this very, very narrow terrain where there are only a handful of districts where both parties feel like they can win. That's a big problem for our democracy. And so that's why I'm so glad. I mean, I'm really, really happy for the folks in Alabama, but more so I'm glad that that section two is left intact so that you have that tool in the toolbox for civil rights attorneys and for sort of like redistricting reform communities around the country to have that tool in the toolbox. So it's intact. Section two is intact and it also has precedent. Right. Yeah. So that that's that's helpful for, for moving forward. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Are back on the Church Politics Podcast is Justin Gibney and the right reverend Christopher Butler. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for president. He's not all that political outside of his name, hasn't, you know, hasn't held office that I know of before, hasn't really been involved in a whole lot of campaigns or anything like that. He's an attorney. He has some views that I think ch- challenge a lot of people, including myself. But Recently, he's gotten a lot of attention. And one of the reasons that he's gotten a lot of attention, Chris, is he has an interesting strategy. Obviously, he has his name. So in my opinion, without his name, he's not making 
somewhat of the splash that he's making right now. But the other thing that he's doing is he's realizing that, number one, mainstream media is falling off. Number two, mainstream media probably wouldn't cover him and don't really cover him fairly. And so he's going really on the podcast circuit. Rogan, Breaking Points, The Hills Rising, all these podcasts that have a lot of follow. I mean, they have a lot of people listening to them, in many cases, more than mainstream media, especially when you're talking about Rogan and maybe even the other ones. And he's connecting with people because it's a, it's a long form format. So he gets to really dig into to, to what he's talking about. As we urge everybody to do, I went, I heard all the narratives, right? So the narrative is he's anti-vax. He's got all these crazy ideas. Okay. But before I formed an opinion, I wanted to at least listen to a few of these interviews and just hear him out. And so I got a chance to listen to some of the interviews, Rogan, uh, the one he did on The Rising. And he's more endearing than I thought he would be. Usually the anti-vax thing, I'm immediate like, all right, guys, I, you know, it's, there's really nothing to be said. But I don't know if he's been represented fairly. There's some things that he's saying that I'm still very concerned about. So this is not me being in agreement with him and certainly not an endorsement. But he's worth listening to. And, and I urge people before there's all kind of look. There's all kind of narratives out there about who the guy is or whatever. I'm just asking you to listen for yourself because some of the explanations that he gives are very different than how he's represented in mainstream media. And I was going back and forth with a friend on this and it was very clear. Hadn't watched any of the video. Hadn't really heard an interview with him. Now his voice and stuff like that is interesting. We went back and forth about whether his voice and I don't know if it's an impediment or just kind of age is kind of a little off putting. It's, it's a little weird to begin with. But the thing that I think he has is he comes through as being very transparent and he'll say things like I will debate anybody because so one of the things he's an attorney, he's been as an attorney, he's worked on a lot of different cases that involve vaccines and stuff like that. But he will say I'll debate anybody. And if I'm wrong, I'll say I'm wrong. And if I've gotten something wrong, you prove that to me. I'll say that. Rarely do people say that. And even more rarely do I believe that people would do that. He makes you feel like you can trust it. He's bringing a little bit of a, a populist spirit into that. So in this time and age, that may attract some people too. And it's really got, from what I can tell, some of the establishment up in arms. I mean, if you were on Twitter earlier this week, you saw folks were shooting at him big time because of some of these big interviews that have gotten a lot of people's attention. And he's around 20 or something in the polls without really having even gotten going. Chris, what are your thoughts on RFK and just the way that he's going about this campaign and the establishment's reaction to him? Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of RFK affect is, I think you use the right word. It's an, it's endearing, and he does come off as really transparent. I think some of, even some of the, the criticism that is leveled at him, I think is sort of undone when you listen to him talk, even the, the charge of him being anti-vax. When, when you listen to him, I think you hear somebody who's what probably be more categorizes as vaccine hesitant and vaccine skeptical, which I think catches a, a larger group of Americans. Because he's not against every vaccine, right? He's basically saying there are some vaccines that just aren't safe and haven't gone through the right process. He's not saying vaccines in general are bad, uh, whether you agree with them or not. That's not what he's saying. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So he's he's got that going for him. I think that the the establishment is right to be a little unnerved. Usually the establishment makes the mistake of moving too slowly to kill these things in their early forms and early iterations. 
I just think, you know, the, the whole reason they rigged the primary on the Democratic side to start in South Carolina instead of going to Iowa and New Hampshire was very much about like the size of the state and the, the media market, that as, as, at least as much as it was about racial equity. And the thought there is being that somebody would not be able to, you know, an upstart candidate wouldn't be able to put together the fundraising and the infrastructure to actually play in South Carolina. I think Kennedy is going to be able to put together definitely the money, maybe the campaign infrastructure. And if you see wins in New Hampshire and Iowa, because Biden is not playing there, really, to me, anything short of a complete blowout in South Carolina is a moral victory for Kennedy going into Super Tuesday. And as a person who just ran a campaign against the son of Reverend Jesse Jackson, I can tell you that the ads that can be put together connecting the previous generation to the existing one uh, are quite compelling. I saw an ad when I was running against Jonathan Jackson, where I literally told my campaign team after we saw it, I was like, I need to call my mother and make sure that she's still voting for me. And you, you think about every grandmother's house, you know, my own included, right? There's a picture of MLK and JFK and the kind of media stuff that you'll be able to put together to stir up that nostalgia among black boomers, black boomer women in particular, you know, South Carolina might be a lock for Biden, but even if the margins are not there, it might be something crazy. So I, I think this is definitely something to watch. Here's one of his advantages. One of his advantages is at a time when somebody clearly lied about COVID, right? We can disagree on how many lies were told or how much we were misled, but it's just not has been it has not been honest at all. And we've already said in a situation like that, you're going to get some things wrong because nobody knows exactly what to do. It looks like things were covered up. We were being misguided to some extent. At a time like that, for somebody who's questioning this stuff, and one of the criticism is that he's coming out of nowhere. He's not an expert on this stuff. He's not a virologist or any of that stuff. But he is an attorney that's been working on these cases for a long time. And what attorneys do when they've been working on these cases is you become an expert to some extent on these issues. You can still disagree with them, mm -hmm. but it, it's not like he's just some random dude in his basement looking at him. He's been litigating these cases. So I think at a time where people do have those questions and it's clear that people in the establishment have not been honest, that gives him an advantage. Yeah. Here's where I think I don't think he can overcome at this point. Super Tuesday is going to be rough. And here's why. Why the Kennedy name may still have some you know, cachet and, and still have some influence in the black community. A lot of people in the black community when it comes to COVID, are still, especially in the high voting range, are still wearing masks, right? Like, mm -hmm. there's still a lot of people who are still very much thinking that this is active and this is, is a problem. Once I think the establishment puts out that he's anti-vax in the way that they have, I think it may be too much for him to overcome because I don't think people are going to sit there and listen to a one-hour Rogan, you know, interview, oh, three mm -hmm. hours, I think it was, or a one-hour rising interview to hear what he's really saying. Yeah, I think that may be more than he can overcome. I'm not sure anything can happen. Biden has to make it through and look like he can, you know, without completely making it look like he won't be able to operate in the office. There's there's a lot of things there, but I think that's going to be the hard part for him if Biden at least makes it through. And we know that we know they can't have him out there everywhere. It's going to be a limited campaign for Biden, but I still think really, really tough for RFK. Any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the whole thing is is tough for him, and I, I I don't see any path for him to like win the nomination. But to come to a convention with a bunch of delegates enough to make not as much a contested convention, I think some real missteps would have to happen on the Biden campaign side to to get to a contested convention, but a a, a disrupted convention for sure, where things have to get discussed maybe voted on that nobody really wants to be dealing with in the convention. And if Biden makes enough mistakes, then that could open up a lot of things. And the the one thing that strikes me the most about RFK Jr. is that he, he comes across as very genuine, but he also comes across as very, very sharp, which is the biggest concern that people have about Biden is not that his heart is not in the right place. He just does not come off as like sharp, competent and ready and and Kennedy absolutely does. And so, you know, if Biden gets out there and starts making big mistakes, you know, it might open up some things. As of right now, there will be no debates, right? The uh, Democratic National Convention National Committee has said there will be no debates, but without the debates, and I think if I'm Biden, you don't want any debates. I think for the sake of democracy, we want debates, mm-hmm. but it's like I don't want him to have to go through that. But the problem with that, and we've seen this happen before, when you don't debate in the primary and the other side has been debating through a primary and you get into that ring with Trump, DeSantis, whoever it may be, that could get ugly. Yeah. So I think it's in the best interest of even, well, whew, it's going to be tough. I was going to say best interest of Biden, but that would contradict what I just said because he don't want it. You don't want to put him in a situation. He can't do it. From what I see, it doesn't look like he can do a full campaign, which to some would say, okay, well, then you can't do the job. I'll let y'all be that. I'll let you make that decision, but it's going to be tough and we'll see how that impacts him. The last thing I'll say is this, just watch the, watch the video here, 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 what he has to say, because it couldn't hurt to hear him out, even though I, it, it's, it's a long shot to say the least. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a long shot. And, you know, Biden to his credit is looking across the aisle and saying that on the other side, it seems like folks are working overtime to make sure that they can't win. He's playing the hand that he's dealt to. And people see what's going on, too. So they got to you got to be careful about that stuff. People see it. People know what happened last time with Bernie. That could backfire as well. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Chris, I was going through my Twitter feed yesterday. And saw an announcement that really rubbed me the wrong way. We, we just put it that way, my, my boy. Unusual Wales, which usually has a lot of good information about financial stuff that's going on in D.C. and all that. I, saw, I see this tweet that says, the Pentagon just, just has just said that an accounting error has provided an extra $6.2 billion for Ukraine. So basically they're saying... We gave Ukraine an extra $6.2 billion based on an accounting error. Chris, we've all probably made accounting errors in our, in our lifetime. It happens. $6.2 billion. I feel like somebody thinks we were born yesterday. Mm-hmm. And, dude, we've been talking about institutional trust for a good portion of this episode. What are people to take? From the fact that you're going to come to us with a straight face and tell us that it was an accounting error that you gave somebody an extra $6.2 billion 
And are we supposed to say, okay, you know, do better next time? Uh, make sure that doesn't happen again, especially with the amount of money that, you know, they already get. I don't I'm not against giving money, some money to the Pentagon. I have questioned how much money Ukraine is getting right now. And with all the other stuff going on, this is just disheartening and insulting. But I'll let you speak on it, Chris. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things shocked. I mean, appalled, but not shocked. You know, not only do you have this, you know, accounting error, billions of dollars, but the, the part that really was me the wrong way is that when you find that we misvalued this equipment that we sent over, shouldn't you be coming to the American people, given the state of our things, you know, we, we almost just had like a, a whole, the whole debt ceiling impasse and all that stuff over spending, blah, blah, blah. Shouldn't you be coming to the American people and saying, hey, we saved you $6 billion, not Hey, we got six billion more that we can, you know, send over to Ukraine. If if you already sent everything that you wanted to send, just valued it wrong. Hey, we saved some money. We can put that back, you know, into the regular budget. But not where we are. <sighs> it's just tough, man. I mean, we want people. We want people. We want the people to be constructive, right? We, we want the people to look and say, "I don't have to." be a cynic about everything that's happening that's going on yeah but when people are hurting to say this is an accounting error that has provided an extra so you have an extra 6.2 like we're just gonna give give that away i i don't know man i'm, I'm almost as you can tell i'm almost speechless yeah at the audacity of of this conversation we there is an accounting error and now we have this much more money to give that's coming from our pentagon that can't pass an audit you know, they can't pass if, an audit. If you're making $6 billion accounting errors, that might be a little bit of a clue into why you might not be able to pass an audit. Um, you probably need to step up your accounting game. But it's it, this actually ties back to the first thing we talked about with the redistricting because, it, to me, a lot of this stuff goes back to our dysfunctional Congress because that really is supposed to be the place where somebody's supposed to look at this and be like, yo, this is crazy. We're having a hearing on this and somebody's got to come before Congress and explain. And that's just not going to happen because our Congress doesn't work. It doesn't work right now, plain and simple. So you guys do with, with that information what you will. I just think I just think it's unfortunate. I will assume that this was incompetence, maybe, I guess, since I don't have enough to, to, to speculate too much otherwise. But again... We weren't born last night, and this is just um, just just difficult to, to to accept, and I don't think it should be accepted. So anyway, hate to end on that note, but we are so glad that y'all joined us. We we were back. Hopefully, y'all got some good information. We covered more issues than we usually do, even though some of them were quick. So I hope y'all enjoyed it. You know what it is, Ann Camp. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Campbell. Well, I'll let you.